Good afternoon, and happy July 4th. I'm shorter than Scott, sorry. <laughs> but I want to first of all welcome you and hope that you. This is uh, for those of you who haven't quite paid much attention to the history of our country. In 1776, was actually 250 years ago, more or less on this day. It as most of you probably realized, every municipality, small and large throughout our vast territory, is planning some sort of celebration for the 250th. But, you know, we know a lot about Lower Manhattan history, and oddly enough, it all happened here, and this is where it started. So, we are getting the first program for the 250th celebration, which if you're counting is the 247th, to share with you what actually happened in Lower Manhattan during the revolution. So the theme today is going to be um, revolutionary, uh, the people who were involved in it, in the revolution, and some parts about the revolutionary story. And Francis Tavern was pretty much, if you look at any of the history where Scott's gonna share with you, the favored watering hole of the Patriots. They had a lot of meetings here. They ate many, many, many meals here. And this is really um, the place where it all actually started probably before the revolution. So this is the beginning of our celebration. Um, for those of you who want to turn around, that is the first copy of the Declaration of Independence that was printed in New York city on water street it was printed july 11 1776 we have it on loan for a week everybody else you have to go to the national archives or someplace in washington or an important museum but we have it for you because it's really important because it happened to you and with that um, scott will give the first program Thank you, Abby, very much appreciate it. And thank you for everybody for attending here today. I'm sorry, we have some standing room only and thank you to everybody joining in online. Uh, we'll be doing a number of speakers this afternoon. So if you can't catch a seat for today's program, uh, we'll have it online obviously uh, as a follow-up. So thank you so much uh, for coming today. Uh, my name's Scott Dwyer. I'm the executive director for Sons of the Revolution, the state of New York and it's Francis Tavern Museum. Uh, you're standing or sitting here uh, in one of the buildings in our five building complex here at the Tavern, uh, uh, 54 Pearl Street, which you entered and walked through to get here. You passed through two buildings on the way uh, to our lecture hall here at 58 Pearl Street. Uh, Francis Tavern, of course, synonymous uh, with patriotism, our patriot leaders. Uh, but I'm going to go through everything from beginning to end. Uh, to tell you about the whole history of this building, uh, how it was constructed, uh, who came here, and what happened to it afterwards. And uh, we'll be going through a number of events and uh, happenings here at the Tavern in the course of our presentations this afternoon. Um, so let me just start off. Um, uh, you know, as, as I was saying before, uh, Francis Tavern, uh, synonymous with patriotism, our founding fathers, but the origins of the building are actually loyalist. 
Uh, the Delancey family is the one that built this uh, building uh, originally in 1719 uh, as a private home in Lower Manhattan. At the time, uh, was was appropriate for a private home, uh, a lot more bucolic uh, than it eventually became. Uh, so the Delanceys built this in 1719. Uh, again, one of the most successful and um, uh, well-known loyalist families uh, at the time of uh, beginning of the revolution and uh, going forward to uh, the rest of the revolution and then eventually the end here in the city. Um, uh, it was uh, built in 1719, but uh, went through a number of uses because the Delancey family actually never lived here uh, because the uh, waterfront and the commercial areas were changing so drastically. Um, it went through a number of uh, different uses. Uh, uh, it was a dance hall at one point, uh, mostly also commercial and shipping uh, uh, ventures were located here. Um, and then uh, in 1759, uh, another Delancey uh, organization or, or company, uh, Delancey Robin & Cone, uh, co-purchased the building. Um, and one of the uh, Delanceys was Oliver, Oliver Delancey, uh, Stephen's son, who built the building in 1719. Uh, and then it was Oliver's son, Oliver, uh, who later, uh, towards the end of the American Revolution, authored uh, the orders uh, organizing the Birch Trials here at Francis Tavern, uh, and that uh, will be covered later in our presentation. Um, so again, a Delancey family building uh, built by a loyalist family, uh, but uh, it was really at the time of Samuel Francis's journey here at the tavern is when a revolution began. Uh, so Samuel Francis purchased this, the tavern in 1762 uh, from the Delancey Robinson & Co. Company and opens what he calls the Queen's Head Tavern after Queen Charlotte, uh, the wife of King George III. Uh, so uh, again, uh, 1762, uh, um, uh, New York City citizens, colonists are already talking about uh, Great Britain's uh, oversight and overbearing uh, uh, relations uh, with the American colonies. Um, uh, and Francis Tavern, uh, like any other tavern, was the place where people came to discuss uh, ideas and, and issues and what was going on in current events. Uh, but Francis Tavern uh, was the place where a lot of these patriots were coming uh, to talk specifically about how to oppose uh, uh, Parliament and uh, what was going on in the city from Great Britain. Um, uh, the New York City Sons of Liberty, uh, who, had, uh, who had been founded in late 1765 here as a chapter of the larger group, uh, met regularly at the tavern uh, to organize protests uh, you know, against uh, the uh, British Parliament. Uh, as we saw in the New York City, uh, New York Tea Party and other battles and skirmishes that happened prior to the revolution. Uh, but all this was happening while Samuel Francis was trying to run a tavern. Uh, he was a businessman, he was trying to run a business. So all of this was happening concurrently uh, with the business he was running at a Francis Tavern here at 54 Pearl Street. Uh, uh, Francis was, was running also other taverns in the city. Uh, he left uh, his uh, oversight here at the tavern for a few years, but came back to it uh, around 1770. Uh, and that's when uh, things really started to pick up. Uh, so we talk about uh, revolutionaries coming to the tavern and having different um, uh, uh, events, meetings, and, and uh, occurrences here. So throughout the 1770s, early 1770s, uh, we have uh, documentation of uh, Paul Revere uh, meeting uh, with the Sons of Liberty and thanking John Lamb for a delicious meal that he shared with them. Uh, Francis Tavern uh, opened the door to the Provincial Congress, uh, who acted as a temporary government uh, for the New York 
uh, colony uh, throughout the revolution. Uh, Sam Adams and uh, John Hancock dined here after uh, they were celebrated at the battles of Lexington and Concord. Uh, and then uh, close to uh, uh, 1776 and 1775, um, famously, a uh, cannonball came through uh, the roof of uh, Francis Tavern. We don't have that cannonball, unfortunately. We do have a few out in our museum's uh, 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 display cases, but not that cannonball, unless it's buried very deeply in our foundation. Um, but uh, again, uh, things are happening here in the city. Um, again, more events, uh, more... Um, uh, 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 protests. And um, again, uh, Francis continues to run his business, continues to welcome uh, patriots into his tavern for meetings and discussions. Um, he sees what's going on, unfortunately, in the city um, and, and is very concerned about his ability to run a successful business if the city falls and he knows what's going to happen uh, to American patriots if the city should fall. Um, so, uh, he uh, tries to escape uh, in 1776, shortly after the city falls to the British, um, but is captured and is brought back uh, to the tavern uh, to essentially be the forced cook uh, to uh, General James Robertson, uh, who is the acting governor of New York uh, for the duration of the war. So essentially doing what he did before, but under duress, under uh, the oversight of uh, the British uh, forces who were in and around the tavern and in and around the city. Um, but he didn't take that assignment lightly. Um, he did what he could uh, to help the Patriot cause even uh, while being forced to work under the British. So um, by his own uh, uh, admission and uh, uh, the uh, um, discussion when uh, after the war, uh, he wrote to uh, uh, Congress to uh, ask for funds to uh, support himself because like all Patriots after the war, he was incredibly um, in an incredibly difficult financial position. So in his testimony to Congress, uh, he uh, told about uh, his actions to support pa the Patriot cause during the war. Um, he was helping British uh, American prisoners aboard British uh, prison ships where he could, giving them food and clothing. Uh, he was listening in on British conversations that were happening at the tavern and sharing those conversations uh, with uh, uh, those Patriots who could still create um, uh, uh, actionable uh, events and, and, and strategy with, the, with that information. Uh, and uh, again, was just uh, doing what he could uh, while still um, uh, in uh, a difficult position. Uh, he did uh, uh, give this testimony to Congress uh, and did uh, con converse with George Washington uh, in the course of that uh, testimony. And uh, uh, General Washington uh, had this to say uh, in a letter uh, about Samuel Francis, again, testifying on his behalf. Um, he, has been, he has been considered, though confined within the British lines, as a friend to our cause. It is said he was uh, remarkably attentive to our prisoners in the city of New York, supporting them as far as his means would allow in the hour of their greatest distress. This is which led uh, to both Governor Clinton, Governor of New York, and myself to countenance and support him. It is the cause, I presume, of his applying through me to you must be my apology for giving you the trouble of this letter. Uh, so again, uh, Samuel Francis is successful um, in receiving funds to support himself because of his service, but uh, is uh, uh, forced to sell the tavern and move to Philadelphia, where uh, he also makes a name for himself. Um, but uh, again, going back to the end of the war, uh, we have uh, two of our uh, larger events, which the tavern is known for, of course, um, after uh, the British uh, evacuate the city, 
1783, on November 25th, uh, General Washington uh, marches out uh, down Broadway and through the city. Um, and uh, he is celebrated here at the Tavern on November 25th uh, by Governor Clinton to celebrate the evacuation of British troops um, through uh, out of the city. Um, this, that series of 13 totes given at that celebration um, are still celebrated here by the Sons of the Revolution anyway, annually on our evacuation day dinner, uh, keeping that memory and keeping that victory alive uh, here at the Tavern and in New York City. Uh, our other uh, well-known uh, event, uh, Washington's farewell to his officers a week and a half later, uh, uh, on December 4th, 1783, um, uh, Washington calls his officers here to the tavern uh, to bid them farewell because after a long war, um, it's time for everybody to go their respective ways, particularly Washington. He was going down uh, to Maryland to hand in his uh, assignment and uh, end his service in as general uh, of the uh, Continental Army. Um, so Washington bids all of his officers farewell, an emotional um, event because of uh, how much they had struggled and how much victory had cost them, uh, but an amazing, somber, but bittersweet event um, that happened downstairs in our long room. Uh, and we talk about those events uh, downstairs in our uh, uh, narrative materials in those uh, respective uh, rooms. And uh, we uh, encourage you, if you haven't already, to go back and uh, read and understand more about these events uh, and uh, how they affected um, all of these um, uh, men as they uh, left the tavern uh, at the end of the war. Um, we'll talk about uh, another event that was happening concurrently at this time, uh, the Birch Trials, which uh, Peter Hine, the president of Sons of the Revolution, will talk about next. Um, but uh, in the meantime, I just want to, again, thank you for coming. And uh, if you'd like to support us, uh, the Tavern and the Museum, uh, by uh, supporting or donating uh, either a membership uh, uh, to the museum or another gift of that nature, uh, please do. We encourage it. Uh, and we just really want to continue to tell these stories and uh, communicate uh, the history of New York City, particularly during the Revolutionary Era, uh, because uh, it is so important to our city's history, uh, the United States history, um, New York City's uh, involvement in that, and particularly Francis Tavern, as Abby was talking about earlier. Uh, just a question? Yeah. Um, there were several fires, yes, uh, and the tavern survived that. One of the few buildings in the neighborhood, if you go around uh, the, the, the immediate area, uh, particularly even on this block, you'll see a lot of it is built uh, either in the 19th century as a, a restoration or a renovation of a lot of buildings that were burned during that period, uh, but the tavern did survive, fortunately. Do you guys own this tavern? Yep, yep. We own uh, the tavern and five buildings here that make up the tavern museum complex. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to take one more question because we do want to move along. Yes. Did General Washington spend the night here after dinner on evacuation? Uh, we don't believe so. No, it wasn't as much a, an, a typical like tavern inn as many other places were. Any accommodations were generally for uh, uh, Francis's family and, and other household employees. Yeah. Any idea where he did spend the night? I don't have that information, unfortunately, though. Oh, really? Um, but again, thank you so much uh, for your time. And I'll hand it over to uh, Peter Hine to talk about our latest exhibition at one of the key events here at Francis Tavern. So uh, thank you very much for coming. Uh, welcome. My name is Peter Hine. 
As uh, Scott indicated, I'm the president of Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York, and we own and operate uh, Francis Tavern Museum. Uh, I'm going to be speaking about our new permanent exhibit, which just opened on the Birch Trials at Francis Tavern. The exhibit is in the area behind the screen. So after the afternoon's program is over, uh, you can see the exhibit yourself. And before I start, I want to uh, thank those who participated in our Lower Manhattan Fourth uh, of July parade today. So if you see people seated next to you who are a little soggy, uh, they are the uh, people from the Veteran Corps of Artillery, the Sons of the Revolution Color Guard, the First Continental and Battle of Brooklyn chapters, the Sons of the American Revolution, Daughters of the American Revolution, including in particular the Fort Greene chapter and the American Legion Post uh, 1291, among others. Uh, and uh, so thank you so much for persevering despite the uh, very intense rain that hit us just as the parade stepped off. But uh, uh, remember the hardships our ancestors faced. I think we can uh, march through a rainstorm. So thank you all. So as Scott said, uh, and, and I also want to thank Abby Suckle, who conceived of this program, it happened here, and uh, Scott uh, Dwyer for working with Abby to organize today. So the theme of the program is It Happened Here, and Scott's mentioned two events uh, that uh, we uh, replicate every year, the uh, evacuation day dinner and banquet in honor of George Washington and Washington's farewell on December 4th, 1783. Uh, I'm gonna talk about a third event that literally happened here, and that was the Birch Trials. And uh, you remember Oliver DeLancey? Uh, Oliver DeLancey was the grandson uh, that Scott mentioned of Stephen DeLancey, who built uh, the Francis Tavern in 1719. And then you may recall Scott mentioned that the DeLancey Robinson firm sold 54 Pearl uh, to Samuel Francis in 1762. Well, on the screen is uh, the order that Oliver DeLancey, as a British adjunct general, signed convening the Board of Commissioners that conducted the Birch Trials. And what's particularly significant is we have on the left a copy of the order as it appeared in Rivington's Royal Gazette in May of 1783. And on the right, a handwritten copy of the order that was in what is called the Book of Negroes. And if you look down to the lower part of both of them, you will see that it is very clear that the board will assemble at Francis Tavern every Monday and Wednesday, Monday and Friday at 10 o'clock, where they will attend from that hour till two o'clock to receive and settle all claims relative to Negroes, et cetera. So we have clear contemporary documentary evidence that the Birch trials indeed ha happened here. So let me give you a little bit of background on the Birch Trials. Uh, the preliminary articles of peace were negotiated 
and signed on November 30, 1782. And Article 7, which is up on the screen, provided that His Britannic Majesty shall, with all convenient speed and without causing any destruction or carrying away any Negroes or other property of the American inhabitants, withdraw all of his armies, garrisons, and fleets from said United States. Now, there was no email in 1782, so it took literally weeks for the preliminary articles of peace to make their way over to America. They finally did. And on April 15, 1783, Congress approved those preliminary articles of peace. Then one turned to implementation. And so on May 6, 1783, George Washington met with his counterpart, Sir Guy Carleton. And you remember the clause in Article 7, the clause about the British not carrying away any Negroes or other property of the Americans. Uh, there was a question about how the British would treat the Black loyalists, including those who had assisted the British forces. And what Washington and Carleton agreed upon was that they would form a joint British and American commission uh, that, in fact, met at Francis Tavern and would be overseen by British Brigadier General Samuel Birch, then the Commandant here in New York. And the painting that we have on the screen and a copy, the actual painting, the original painting is behind the screen in the exhibit itself, shows the conference to arrange for the evacuation of New York City, 1783, a painting uh, done by John Ward Dunsmore, who created literally dozens of paintings depicting scenes from the revolution uh, we have dozens of those paintings in our collection. We also have a calendar that's available for purchase in our gift shop that shows the a number of the best of those paintings. And you, if you're looking for a nice holiday gift, I recommend our Dunsmore calendar. Uh, but you can see a number of the Dunsmores around this room and also in the exhibit. Now, let me give you a little bit of uh, background concerning the Birch trials. Uh, during the course of the British evacuation, there were approximately 3,000 Black loyalists who evacuated New York City in the period April through November of 1783. And their names were recorded in what was called the Book of Negroes. And the Birch trials were part of the process that was set up by Washington Carleton as I mentioned, to address what were contested cases. The evacuation of these 3,000 Black loyalists was a culminating event in what we believe to be one of the largest emancipations of Black people prior to the American Civil War. So it has that element of history to it as well. Now, on the screen are the examples of what we call birth certificates. These were certificates issued uh, to confirm the right of Black loyalists to board one of the British ships evacuating New York City. And if you look at the certificate on the left uh, for Cato Ramsey, April 1783, you'll see that it refers in the text to proclamations of Sir William Howe and Sir Henry Clinton, two of the British commanders. 
And what that's referring to is the fact that the during the war, the British offered freedom to slaves who fought for the British. And uh, beginning with Lord Dunsmore's proclamation in November 1775. And then there was you know, some mixed feelings among the British about whether or not they really wanted to have uh, black loyalists uh, sign up and fight in their forces. And at one point, uh, March of 1777, uh, General Howe ordered, and this is up on the screen, uh, all Negroes, mulattoes, and other improper persons who have been admitted into these corps be immediately discharged. So that there obviously was some uh, differing views among the British as to whether this was a good idea to have uh, black soldiers in their forces. But as the war went on, the British began to actively recruit, recruit black soldiers. And then we have the Phillipsburg Proclamation. It was issued in June of 1779 by British General Sir Henry Clinton, then the overall commander of uh, British forces in America. And on the one hand, uh, that proclamation directed that black patriot soldiers who were captured be purchased for the public service. So if you were a black patriot and you were captured by the British, uh, you'd be purchased for the public service. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it offered freedom to follow any occupation for those black soldiers and other black colonists who deserted and came within the British lines. The Americans also uh, actively sought to enlist black soldiers throughout the war. And up on the screen, I have an excerpt from General George Washington's order, December 30, 1775, that provided that as the general is informed that numbers of free Negroes are desirous of enlisting, he gives leave to the recruiting officers to entertain them and promises to lay the matter before the Congress, who he doubts not will approve it. And then Congress later the next month resolved that the free Negroes who had served faithfully in the army at Cambridge may be re-enlisted therein, but no others. But by January of 1777, George Washington instructed, instructed that his recruiters should enlist none by but free men, but that dropped any requirement that the free black soldiers had previously served. And then as the war went on, uh, the Americans also offered freedom to slaves who joined the army. So Rhode Island offered emancipation in exchange for service and in February 1778 authorized the enlistment of every able-bodied Negro, mulatto, or Indian manslave who upon enlisting would be discharged from service of his master and be absolutely free. And then Virginia, in drafting soldiers for the Continental Army, included free Black men. And in 1783, Virginia's General Assembly directed the emancipation of certain slaves who sold, served as soldiers in Virginia. And any enslaved man who had enlisted at the request of his owner, per the order of the Virginia General Assembly, was to be fully and completely emancipated. So. Our society uh, 
seeks to perpetuate the memory of those who fought for American independence. And our exhibit thus features several Black patriots, just a few of the literally thousands of Black patriots who fought on the American side in the Revolutionary War. And so first we feature Crispus Attucks, who is believed to be the first patriot killed by British soldiers in the course of the rebellion. And we have up on the screen the famous engraving by Paul Revere that shows the Boston Massacre, uh, where Crispus Attex was the first to be killed. And then we had Black soldiers fighting in the revolution from the very outset. Uh, so they fought as Minutemen in the battles of Lexington and Concord. And the role of the Black patriots at Bunker Hill has been memorialized among other places in John Trumbull's famous painting that we have up on the screen. And then finally, uh, James Armistead played an important role in scouting the British defenses at Yorktown. Armistead was originally enslaved, but he obtained permission from his owner to enlist in a French unit under General Lafayette and he provided important intelligence that was critical to the decisive American with assistance from the French victory at Yorktown. And here we have up on the screen, a picture of Lafayette with Armistead. So that gives you a bit of preview of the Birch Trials. Uh, Francis Tavern Museum has multiple other exhibits, both permanent and rotating including an active lecture series, tours, other programs, a robust website with virtual uh, content. And as we approach our 250th anniversary of our nation, uh, we would certainly welcome your getting involved uh, to support our efforts to maintain historic Francis Tavern, to continue to tell the story of the American Revolution, and continue to tell the story of what happened here at Bronx's Tavern. So thank you very much. Uh, Ted Nutson will be joining us virtually. So just let me get him uh, up on the screen. Ted, are you with us? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. Let me just uh, turn up the volume a bit. Okay, Ted, go ahead. Hi, guys. Thank you very much for having me. My name is Ted Knudsen. I'm one of the co-founders of the New York City Revolutionary Trail, and I work with the Gotham. Oh, sorry, actually, Ted, we're just trying to try to turn up the volume again. Give me a second. Yeah. Okay, try again. Uh, can you hear me now? 
Yes. Okay, great. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you to Scott and Abby in particular for inviting me. Uh, my name is Ted Knutson. Um, I teach at Queens College, American History, um, and I am the co-founder of the New York City Revolutionary Trail, um, which is what I'm going to talk to you about today. Uh, the sort of jewel of which is the museum that you're standing in, as, as you might imagine. Um, uh, next slide. Uh, next slide. That's yep, great. What, 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 one more. So um, the, the reason I got into this project about uh, five or six years ago now um, is I, I, I grew up in New York City. I was uh, educated there. I, um, I'm not there at present uh, today, but I live, I live in New York City. Um, and I was, I've always been fascinated as to why New York City is not central uh, to our retellings of stories of American history. Um, Scott and his team and many of the, um, <clears throat> many of the institutions around the city uh, who deal with history do a terrific job. Um, there's a tremendous amount of content about New York City. And yet, um, when people think of the American Revolution, they generally think about uh, Boston, uh, Philadelphia, the Savannah Seaport, um, Colonial Williamsburg, almost anywhere uh, besides New York City. Uh, that would have really surprised um, anyone uh, in the colonial period, uh, whether you are a patriot, a loyalist, or the King of England, uh, for, the, for that matter. Uh, New York was considered the crown jewel of British North America. Um, it is the center. Uh, central strategic location uh, in the war. Um, and it is a place uh, that was contested um, and occupied um, during the war for six or seven, six and a half, seven years. Uh, so it's really um, interesting. Um, it is the, obviously the nation's first capital. So how did New York kind of fall out of the story? Um, why is it that we don't hear about it more than we do um, I'll give you my theory on the subject. Uh, next slide. Uh, I call this the Rodney Dangerfield question for those of you who are old enough to remember who Rodney Dangerfield was. Um, how does the city at the heart of the American Revolution, how come we get no respect uh, among historical tourists in particular? Um, obviously there's a huge uh, industry. Uh, heritage tourism is one of the largest uh, sort of segments of tourism in the United States. Uh, and yet very few people come to, very few people, the kind of people who go to Gettysburg, for example, um, or the Civil War battlefields at Bull Run or, or Williamsburg uh, in Virginia, um, very few of those people come to New York City. Um, why? Uh, I think it's a couple reasons. Um, a lack of a preserved historic district um, in the same way that Independence Park or in Philadelphia or the downtown Boston and the Boston Freedom Trail um, offers in those locations. For those of you who have had uh, the good luck to visit there, um, I think New York also, as you, as you just heard about the Birch Trials um, and all talking about loyalists and patriots, 
um, and the, that New York is really a site of an almost a, of a civil war uh, during the American Revolution. It's a very complicated picture. Um, it doesn't have all of the doesn't it's not quite as clean as Boston and Philadelphia, uh, where it's just patriots doing what patriots do. You know, throwing off the uh, the mantle of of tyranny and empire. New York's story is, uh, you know, it's more complicated. It's more interesting, uh, but it's not quite as clean. And I think, but I think what we at the Gotham Center, as a fellow institution like Francis Tavern, uh, feel um, perhaps most of all is that we have these local wonderful local institutions, but we get limited network effects. Um, uh, that is to say, um, Boston has the Boston Freedom Trail, for example, as I'll tell you later, gets about six million people a year. Uh, prior to the Boston Freedom Trail, the um, the institutions that are currently on the Boston Freedom Trail drew less than ten percent of that number. Um, yet somehow, um, when they took these a couple of churches, a couple of historic buildings, um, and and a museum and put them together in Boston in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, together, this trail became what you might say is more than the sum of its parts. Um, and, and you can say that about the Freedom Trail in Boston, Independence Park in, uh, in Pennsylvania, um, in the Savannah waterfront, et cetera. And I think finally, one of the reasons tourists don't come to New York is because tourists haven't come to New York. Uh, for these purposes, to see these things as much as they've gone to those other places. Phenomenon like these grow upon themselves. Uh, people hear uh, that their cousin or their uncle, um, or they see it on social media, that they visited this some place, uh, and they become interested in it. Um, and until we have some historical tourists, um, we won't get a lot more historical tourists uh, in New York City. Uh, it's a sort of a chicken or an egg phenomenon. Next slide. So what we are trying to do, um, uh, and, and, and we appreciate all of, uh, in partnership with, with Scott and the museum and a, and a number of other institutions, um, is to create a New York version of the, basically the Boston Freedom Trail, which we're calling the New York City Revolutionary Trail. Um, it has um, 16 locations um, over three sort of mini tour or mini walk periods. Um, and, you know, some of the, 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 the starring roles go to places, not surprisingly, Francis Tavern, uh, Federal Hall, uh, the South Street Seaport, as well as uh, Trinity Church and St. Paul's churches. So it's very... Um, you know, we, we actually do have more of a built environment maybe than we give ourselves credit for sometimes. Um, and so, so this, basically what we're gonna be able to do, however, uh, we have a beta version of the tour up now on a website. Um, and sometime this fall, probably Q4 this year, um, it will go into a GPS, uh, a GPS fence app on your phone. Uh, so you'll be able to walk around um, all these sites, uh, Google Maps will take you from site to site, um, and you'll and, and I'm just going to walk you through quickly what you're going to be able to see. Um, so next slide. Uh, so as I said, it's a walking tour. Um, if you do it very quickly, you can do it in 90 minutes. 
Um, it uh, currently features 75 minutes of audio narration. Um, it's three miles or five kilometers, very similar to the Boston Freedom Trail. It starts at the Battery and goes in sort of a fish hook around Lower Manhattan um, and then up toward Federal Hall on Wall Street. Next slide. Uh, so at each site along the, along the, along the trail, uh, you'll be able to uh, learn about uh, you know what happened at the site. Um, obviously, in the Revolutionary Years. Uh, via text and audio. Um, next slide. You'll be able to see what, you know, kind of what's there today, uh, as well as uh, you'll meet at each of the sites, one of the really important uh, people or individuals uh, that made revolutionary New York so dynamic, uh, diverse and interesting. Uh, so here at the Battery, you'll meet, uh, meet uh, Joseph Brandt, uh, famous uh, um, Iroquois warrior and diplomat. Um, why, why is Joseph Grant down there at the Battery? Well, it's right next to where the Museum of the uh, American Indian uh, is in the old customs building across from Bowling Green. Next slide. Um, in addition, we'll be able to show you kind of what it looked like in the period versus these lost, what we call lost landscapes. Um, there uh, we have at at three of the stops now, and we will soon have it, all of them, uh, history channels uh, type talking head videos um, where um, university level scholars will, uh, will talk about what the cutting edge, edge research is on things uh, uh, like uh, loyalism, uh, like uh, political economy in revolutionary America, um, et cetera. For those of you who like to nerd out on this kind of uh, these kind of things, they'll be about five to 10 minutes long. Um, that would elongate the tour, but it will also make it, I think, more interesting. Um, next slide. And as I said, uh, we, we hope to be able to, in several different ways, to try to recreate colonial New York. We don't have, you know, all the original buildings in the way that Boston does. Uh, Francis Tavern is so special, I think, to us because and, and, and the area around Francis Tavern, Stone Street and Kunti's Slip and everything, they're so special to us as New Yorkers because they are kind of our physical link, link to the past. At some of these other locations, um, we will be trying to recreate what New York would have looked like in the period. And we're gonna try to deliver that to people in a couple of different ways. Um, artistic renderings, as you can see here. Uh, next, next, next slide. Uh, we, we're going to try. We're 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 um, developing augmented reality uh, or AR or which is you know sort of uh, or extended reality. Sometimes it's called these days, um, where you'll be able to hold your phone up to things like New York Harbor um, and see the British invasion fleets uh, coming at you um, from the Battery. Next slide. Or you can uh, go down to Bowling Green. Um, which looks pretty much the same as it did in the colonial period. And right in the middle of the fountain of Bowling Green, uh, there used to be uh, this uh, 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 equestrian statue of King George III, which was pulled down uh, in July of 1776, famously, in this painting here um, on the left. Um, we'll be, you'll be able to raise your phone up um, and see the pedestal um, and what the uh, statue would have looked like um, in, 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 three, in three dimensions. Uh, you'll be able to walk around it, 
um, see see through it kind of, uh, um, and we'll have a great amount of detail on on how it was cast and made, et cetera. Um, next slide. Uh, and uh, for the Great Fire of 1776, we're using um, artificial in intelligence uh, actually to, as well as uh, computer generated images uh, to recreate um, the, the, the experience of colonial New York on fire. Um, and finally, next slide. Um, we'll be, we're, we're creating a 3D model of the prison ship Jersey where many of the revolutionary <clears throat> Um, revolutionary uh, patriot prisoners uh, spent wild away um, much of the war after the uh, British invasion here in New York and thousands, uh, perhaps over 10,000 uh, uh, patriots uh, died um, in these prison ships uh, on the East River. The prison Hulk Jersey is, is perhaps the most famous one and we'll be able to, we're recreating it in three-dimensional space. You'll be able to, via your phone, um, kind of walk around, explore it, uh, see what its bones look like, uh, see what its living conditions would have looked like, et cetera. So that's our vision. Um, we've been working on it for about five years and it's coming um, it's kind of, it's coming to fruition finally uh, this this fall. Um, and I think hopefully um, we are going to solve some of the issues of why uh, why New York has been, overlooked or underrepresented in the revolutionary story. Uh, next slide, please. Um, we're leaning into its more, uh, you know, controversial elements of uh, New York history. We are embracing the concept of the Civil War. And like, uh, like Francis Tavern has done beautifully with, the Birch, with their Birch Trial exhibit, which I highly recommend you guys uh, spend a little bit of time ingesting. Um, we believe that New York tells this more diverse and complex history uh, with people of African descent, uh, Native Americans playing, and Native Americans playing much larger roles, um, uh, women uh, certainly playing uh, major roles, particularly uh, in, in, in espionage, uh, for example. Um, and, we're, it, but it's not enough just to sort of tell these stories. Uh, next slide, Scott. Uh, we're using AI to create new images or additional images uh, from the colonial period um, that that represent that show and represent this more diverse element. Uh, next slide. And what we're hoping for is a, a network effect um, that all of us doing this kind of work here in New York, working together um, and creating content for the, for for the next uh, uh, for the the two hundred fiftieth anniversary. Um, we can create some of that Boston, uh, Philadelphia magic. We estimate that New York now gets about 300,000 annual heritage tourists. We hope to draw over a million plus in 2026. Um, so we, and we hope that most of those people will go to Francis Tavern, uh, certainly, um, and other places, uh, Federal Hall, the uh, African Burial Grounds Museum, the National Museum of the American Indian, and the New York City Fire Museum <clears throat> on Spring Street. Um, so that is something that we're working on. Um, it's coming soon to a theater near you, um, but it's, you know, we, Francis Tavern is the inspiration for all of this. Uh, I'm a Francis Tavern super user, have been since I was a little kid, um, and it stoked my interest in the American Revolution 
um, and particularly telling uh, New York's story. So I'm really grateful to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ted. And I wouldn't be remiss if I didn't mention that Ted is joining us remotely because it is A, a holiday, and B, his birthday today. So please, <laughs> happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. Uh, now I'm going to invite uh, Dwight John Zimmerman up to the podium. Thank you so much. Well, good afternoon. It's not often that uh, a military leader in his first command uh, changes the course of history. But that's what happened with George Washington. But he didn't do something great in the sense of successful. He did a disastrous, um, and it was a disaster. Um, he started a war, not just any war, but what amounted to the first world war between France and England. In 1754, George Washington was a Lieutenant Colonel in the Virginia militia. He was 22 years old. And at that time, uh, the big three uh, world powers were England, France, and Spain. Now they had large colonial empires in the new world. Uh, France was Canada. England basically just had this little strip along the Atlantic coast that was our 13 colonies. Spain, of course, had everything from Mexico on down, except for Brazil, which was Portugal. Um, military officers at that time, um, they basically either bought their commissions, so in other words, they were wealthy, uh, or they had uh, political connections. In George Washington's case, that was the fact. He'd had basically no military experience at all, but he was well-connected, he's from a well, uh, wealthy family, um, and um, as such, he was able to rise above uh, to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel by uh, 1750, uh, yeah, 1754. Excuse me. Excuse me. Um, the Royal Governor of Virginia was Robert Dinwiddie, and he was a patron of uh, George Washington's. Um, he learned that uh, the French were encroaching on the area of the upper Ohio River Valley that was claimed by England. Well, this was a disputed territory. Well, basically what would happen is um, groups of soldiers or surveyors from one country or the other would go to a region, uh, lay down a marker, usually a plaque, plant a flag, and declare that piece of territory for the country. Then another uh, group from a different country would you know, show up, see the plaque, see the flag, throw the plaque away, burn the flag, and plant their own plaque uh, and flag. And this would go back and forth and back and forth. Well, Dinwiddie had finally had enough of what the French were doing up the uh, upper Ohio River Valley, particularly around the place where there's basically present-day Pittsburgh. <laughs> So in 1754, uh, 
Dinwiddie ordered Washington to assemble a, a military force that included some cannon and go up there and, by God, take it back once and for all. Now, the thing was, uh, there were no roads. They had to carve their own, blaze their own road through thick forest, up and down you know, valleys. And uh, as such, it took them, they didn't travel no more than two to four miles a day, hacking down trees, clearing uh, rocks, everything. And it took them more than two months to travel the 300 miles from Virginia up to, well, for practical purposes, we'll just call it Pittsburgh. You know, and then along the way, what he discovered was the small British gar garrison that had been established there, um, they had evacuated the, the, the small fort that they had because a larger French force had shown up there, aimed their guns at them, and basically said, you can either leave or we'll kill you. And they decided, looking at uh, this superior force that had cannon, they didn't, uh, that, uh, yeah, you can, you know, you can take the place. Uh, bye. So Washington gets that intelligence, and he goes, oh, okay. Uh, he uh, writes a letter to go back and uh, hope that uh, he can get some more reinforcements just in case some do arrive. And when he gets close to his objective, he sets up a base camp that he calls Fort Necessity. And he decides uh, to leave some of his force there. Um, in the meantime, uh, well, both sides, both the French and uh, the British, had set up alliances with the Native Americans in the uh, in the area. In Washington's case, uh, the alliance was with a uh, members of the Seneca tribe, and uh, they joined forces with Washington there. And Washington wanted to attack as quickly as possible. So they set up a simple plan where they would surround the fort where the French were, and get in as close as they could, and uh, demand a surrender uh, or attack. Now, a thing you have to know about uh, firearms back then, uh, there are two types. Uh, they're, uh, they were both muskets, uh, were called you know, the shoulder arms. And they were either smoothbore or more rarely rifled. Now, smoothbore is, you know, where uh, the name uh, suggests. The barrel, the inner part of the barrel is completely smooth. Uh, rifled, there are little grooves that are cut in and they are twisting to add a spin to uh, the bullet as it uh, is shot out of the rifle barrel. Now, the thing about a smoothbore is it is incredibly inaccurate. We're, we're all familiar with the phrase, uh, wait until you see the whites of their eyes. Well, for all its drama, it was actually a very practical reason because you had to get as close as possible in order to be able to hit anything. For instance, anyone who's standing in the back there, if I had a smoothbore aimed it at you, I had a 50-50 chance of hitting you. And even if I did hit you, I don't know where it would be. I could be aiming for your head and it could just wind up on your foot or a near miss. Yeah. Um, so you had to get as close as I can see the whites of your eyes 
gentlemen. Now that's scary, but it's also very, you know, but you, everyone knew this. Now, if you had a rifled musket, you could stand as far as a hundred yards back and pretty much be assured that you're gonna hit exactly where, where you were aiming. The second thing you need to know is that they used, uh, the gunpowder that they used back then is what we now call black powder. Uh, firearms now uh, fire uh, smokeless powder, or at least there's very little smoke. Um, but back then, after about three shots, the area would be covered in thick fog of, of the gunpowder smoke, very thick. So, you know, in battles, uh, it didn't take long for the whole area to just be completely obscured by this fog of gunpowder. All right, so the, so the shooting starts. As the French noticed some activity and they raised the alarm and now they're in their fort and they're, you know, starting to shoot. Washington and his men are shooting back. Within 10 minutes, the whole area is just absolutely covered. And that's when, and the French have wound up taking, they're taking heavy casualties, about a third of their force. We're talking, uh, so of the 50, 60 men inside the fort, you know, that's a significant amount. Seeing all the smoke, they decide to try and escape uh, using the smoke as you know, the gunpowder smoke as cover. Well, they don't get far, they are captured. And that's when the, the French officers who surrender start yelling at uh, Washington. They're waving diplomatic uh, documents and they're screaming you know, all kinds of French words <laughs> that uh, probably were very nice. Because what Washington discovers is that one of the men dead is a French ambassador, Joseph Coulomb, Sierra de Jumonville. Word of this gets back to Paris and several weeks later, because of course it has to go up to Canada and then by boat across the Atlantic. Well, when news reaches the court of Louis XV, they're outraged. They declare war. In uh, Europe, that's called the Seven Years' War. Here, it's the French and Indian War. The upshot was France lost Canada. Thanks to George Washington. Anyone have any questions? <laughs> yes, sir. I'm sorry. Necessity uh, I'm half deaf. The fort you were referring to, what was the name? Oh, um, Fort Duquesne. Yes, sir. I think in your book you make the point, though, that this, after this initial difficult experience, Washington overcame the adversity and went on to uh, great things. Yeah, he kind of made up for it. But yes, uh, the point was he did. He definitely learned his lesson. Um, he, his experience of working with the British Army was very in, instructive because 
they didn't really think much of the uh, colonial uh, militia. And uh, the other part too is they had a they had a conceit about the proper way of waging war, which essentially was you lined up in a series of rows, uh, marched in formation, stood in formation, fired around, moved back. They had they would have multiple rows lined up. So the first row would shoot, they would march to the rear. Second row would shoot, they would march it back in place. So it was very staged. Well, now the colonists discovered that, well, Native Americans, when they fought, they didn't fight that way. They hid, you know, they were basically what we would call guerrilla warfare. So that's what they learned to do. Now, that's not the gentleman's way of fighting war, according to British officers. Well, no, because they wanted to just, they wanted to live. They didn't want to get a bullet in the, you know, they, they'd give bullets to the other people. So it, it was, uh, Washington got a very good hands-on, yeah, I would call it on-the-job training, military uh, training, because uh, that's all that, yeah, you know, he was really able to get at that point. Anyone else? Wasn't he called the worst soldier in the British Empire? Um, it was in the newspaper, the worst soldier in the British Empire. Yeah. First man, first assessment. No, I, I, I'm afraid I couldn't tell you. Yes. Well, I think Washington demonstrated some skills that he may not have had in the military field by spinning this episode somewhat to his advantage in his reports Well, keep in mind, uh, he didn't realize the uh, impact of uh, the ambassador's death. That only became apparent after Paris uh, went nuts, uh, delivered uh, their declaration of war to London, and then word gets back to uh, the, the colonies that, uh, oh, hey, we're at war. And uh, as to how much you know, Washington um, was held culpable, well, he really wasn't. Uh, he, you know, his reputation actually got enhanced because, of course, these were French and they were the enemy. Yes. Do you think the fact that he chose to build a fort at the bottom of the hill led to how much he valued the uh, French engineering expertise? You know, when they joined. Later on, because maybe he realized that like British worker style didn't emphasize that like as much as they could. I mean, I don't know. It's like obviously he didn't really have had that know how. Whereas if he were French, he might have been trained in that. Well, the thing is, uh, locations of forts were usually based on uh, a strategic location. For instance, like a fork in a river. You know, which, uh, and then you were looking around to see, okay, is, uh, is it high ground? Is it open? Um, is it easily defensible? Uh, so there are all kinds of factors. Um, and Washington at least had a lot of practical experience being a plantation owner, uh, surveying, um, all the leadership, uh, and, uh, you know, the various social connections. So he understood a lot of support elements. 
you know, and he was a natural leader. Um, he knew how to inspire his troops, because um, uh, he also had experience with that, you know, uh, from his uh, plantation work. Yeah. I remember being taught that the British held up his promotions because of the incident of the Um I'm sorry, could you say that a little louder, please? that Washington promotion was held up because of the death of the ambassador. Well, probably, but at the same time, there are all kinds of factors. Uh, um, uh, besides the force, um, need at the time, um, but you know, regardless of uh, any delay, ultimately, he became a very successful general. Didn't the British used to say if he had only promoted him, he, he never would have been a successful had promoted him at the time, he would be a British officer fighting against the United States. And he, he wasn't and didn't. And there we have history. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Uh, what was the ambassador doing? Yeah, what was the ambassador about? Actually, I was the ambassador. He was there to help secure Francis claim. He, he had a variety of documents uh, on him. And uh, essentially this was, uh, he was on a diplomatic mission to uh, firm up Francis claim to the region. Thank you. Oh, that's In Washington at the time the invasion of have any idea the French ambassador was there? No, yeah. no, that was I a surprise. I, I think that's a particularly important factor, which I think mitigates in Washington's favor, because if he had attacked the court knowing there was an ambassador there, presumably would have some kind of diplomatic immunity or, or at least Well, it probably would have definitely changed how Washington approached the court. Yeah. He might have, you know, under a flag of truce, walked up and said, Washington assumed he was attacking a purely military party. Yes. And I just want to make that clear. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, this was a military mission on his part. He wanted to drive out what he thought was an, you know, a military force, period. And only much later did he discover that there was a diplomat in there. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone, and happy July 4. All right, my name is Nicole Chalet, and I am the president of the Alexander Hamilton Awareness Society, also known as the AHA Society. And we are around before the musical, that's why we have the name AHA Awareness in our title, uh, because there's still so much more to explore about Alexander Hamilton. And so for my lecture today, I thought, let's take a look at July 4th, and again, in keeping with the theme of It Happened Here, Let's look at some snapshots of important July 4s through Hamilton's life and the overarching theme that tie into his fight for independence. So Alexander Hamilton, and 
since the slides are a little uh, reworked here. But he moved to the mainland colonies from the Caribbean as a teenager around 1772 in order to uh, formalize his schooling here on the mainland. He was quickly caught up with revolutionary fervor, and even while he was a college student at today's Columbia University, he was active with the cause for independence. Here you can see what he looked like in 1777, wearing his aide-de-camp uniform for George Washington, uh, within just a few years of emigrating from the Caribbean. He also was an essayist in favor of independence. Well before the Declaration of Independence was written in 1776, Hamilton, again while he was a college student, was expressing similar philosophical and political statements in pamphlets supporting the cause for independence. As he wrote in one pamphlet in December of 1774, that Americans are entitled to freedom is incontestable upon every rational principle. All men have one common original. They participate in one common nature and consequently have one common right. No reason can be assigned why one man should exercise any power or preeminence over his fellow creatures more than any other, unless they have voluntarily vested him with it. Since then, Americans have not, by any act of theirs, empowered the British Parliament to make laws for them. It follows that they can have no just authority for it. Quite powerful words coming from a teenager, right? In a subsequent essay in February 1775, Hamilton beautifully states, quote, the sacred rights of mankind are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. They are written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the hand of divinity itself and can never be erased or obscured by mortal power. A couple of months after this essay, fighting officially broke out at Lexington and Concord and Alexander Hamilton quickly joined a militia group here in New York City, originally called the Corsicans and later the Hearts of Oak, before he was commissioned as a captain of a New York artillery company in March of 1776. It was in this capacity that Hamilton would have first read the very first public reading of the Declaration of Independence in New York City. On July 2nd, the Continental Congress votes for independence. The Declaration of Independence receives its first signatures on July 4th, and it is quickly sent off to George Washington, who was stationed here in New York City with the Continental Army. On July 9th, George Washington reads aloud the Declaration of Independence to his assembled troops and the public at the Commons, today's site of City Hall, and Alexander Hamilton was there as in his function as artillery captain. Now, public fervor was so whipped up from this reading that a subset of this group, led largely by the Sons of Liberty, went straight down to Bowling Green and tore down the equestrian statue of King George III to melt it down for ammunition. Just three days later, after this incident, Hamilton's artillery company saw action as it fired cannon on the British warships, the Phoenix and Rose, as they were sailing up the Hudson River. Captain Hamilton continued to fight in the 1776 campaign through New York and New Jersey until he became aide-de-camp to George Washington, a position he held for over four years. And that brings us to another July 4th, July 4th, 1778. Now the War of Independence was in its third year at this time, and as each July 4th marked another year, greater questions of whether the country would succeed in actually achieving its independence that had declared in 1776 increased. Many problems plagued the fledgling nation, including difficulty funding the army, political infighting, and of course, meddling results on the battlefield. On July 4th, 1778, 
a court-martial was convened for Major General Charles Lee to review his conduct and his disobeyal of Washington's orders during the Battle of Monmouth that had just occurred the week before in New Jersey. Now, in Hamilton's role as aide-de-camp, he had been passing orders to General Lee on behalf of Washington and many other active tasks for monitoring the situation, passing along messages, both prior to the battle and during the battle. As such, Hamilton was a major eyewitness, and on July 4th, he testified in this trial. Charles Lee was found guilty of the court-martial's charges and dismissed from the army temporarily, despite him having been number two in command under Washington. So this was just one of the many trials and tribulations that the U.S. faced. And again, with so much stacked against the Continental Army, it would be several more years of war and struggle before Great Britain finally recognized U.S. independence. Even after the U.S. gained its independence officially, there were still doubts if the fledgling country would survive. Throughout the 1780s, Alexander Hamilton threw all of his purpose into making a stronger national government. Now that we have our independence, let's make sure we can keep it. He worked to make calls for a stronger national government to be formed. He made the official call for the Constitutional Convention to be held in Philadelphia, and he was extremely active both in the drafting of the Constitution and then its ratification process. Finally, in April of 1789, George Washington was sworn in as the first president under the U.S. Constitution. Now, that year's July 4th celebration in New York City, the nation's capital at the time, was, as you can imagine, a seminal one. Now, the New York chapter of the Society of Cincinnati, which was an organization created for officers of the Allied forces after the war, had a large meeting on July 4th. During their meeting, they voted Alexander Hamilton as vice president of their organization. President was Baron von Steuben, for those of you wondering. And Hamilton was also selected to uh, be a part of a committee to greet President Washington and other heads of the government, quote, with the congratulations of the day before the society held an important procession down to St. Paul's Chapel, where Alexander Hamilton had been the one selected to give a eulogium for General Nathaniel Green, who had passed away in 1786. The audience not only included members of the Society of Cincinnati, but also included the president's wife and family, the vice president and ladies of his family, the Senate and Speaker of House of Representatives. Hamilton and other members of the society then returned to the city tavern for a dinner and the drinking of 13 toasts in honor of the nation. July 4th was already becoming an important day of celebration and 1789 with the birth of a constitutional government was certainly a milestone year for not only the United States and Alexander Hamilton was at the head of these notable festivities. Speaking of the Society of Cincinnati, Hamilton's last July 4th in 1804 was spent here, right here in Francis Tavern, at a Society of Cincinnati celebration, again, honoring Independence Day. Former compatriots gathered together for revelry and remembrance. Now, the artist John Trumbull was one of those in attendance, and later on in his life, he reflected on this day. He said, on the 4th of July, I dined with the Society of Cincinnati, my old military comrades, and they met, among others, General Hamilton and Colonel Burr. Now the singularity of their manner was observed by all, but few had any suspicion of the cause. Burr, contrary to his wont, was silent, gloomy, dour. While Hamilton entered with glee into all the gaiety of a convivial party and even sung an old military song, a few days only passed when the wonder was solved by that unhappy event which deprived the United States of their two most distinguished citizens. 
as I'm sure you can imagine, just a week after the July 4th celebration at Francis Tavern, Vice President Aaron Burr and Major General Alexander Hamilton met on the dueling grounds of Lee Hawken on the dawn of July 11. Hamilton received a fatal wound from a bullet and died the next day. He was laid to rest on July 14, 1804 at Trinity Church, where a monument still stands for him today. Every July, the Alexander Hamilton Awareness Society and our partners gather at his grave for a remembrance and reflame ceremony. Pictured here, you can see members of the Hearts of Oak Independent Militia Company, which reenacts the original militia company that Hamilton joined back in 1775-76 when uh, the original uh, fighting broke out. We invite you uh, to continue learning about visiting where things happen. We'd love for you to join us next week for Celebrate Hamilton, our 12th annual anniversary of honoring Alexander Hamilton's life and legacy. We have events in New York City and New Jersey, including at Trinity Church, and we do hope you join us. You can find the full schedule of events on the ahasociety.org. And we'd love for you to stay further connected with us. We're also the official partner of Hamilton Grange National Memorial. So in addition to all the many wonderful Lower Manhattan sites, we hope you'll visit Upper Manhattan and tour the many historic sites available there as well. So in summary, when we look back on Hamilton's life, especially as we're looking at these July 4th snapshots, we see the thorough line of his fight for independence and the strengthening of the pillars to make that independence long lasting military strength to protect from foreign invasion and intrusion, sound monetary and fiscal responsibility to ensure the stability of the nation to support the political structures of the, of the constitution and the nation's laws, economic development and manufacturing to make sure that the fledgling country's independence would not depend on important goods that were required from other countries and policies to influence. His vision was all encompassing in his lifelong fight for his adopted country's independence. In closing, I feel it only appropriate to quote Alexander Hamilton's original eulogy for General Green that he gave on a different July 4th all those years ago to remember Hamilton's own legacy. Quote, as a man, his virtues are admitted. As a patriot, he holds a place in the foremost rank. As a statesman, he is praised. As a soldier, he is admired. Happy Fourth of July, everyone. Thank you. Do you mind when he gave the eulogy for um, Green? Yes, that was July Fourth, seventeen eighty-nine. Yes. Uh, just, I just wanted to perhaps you might want to very consistent with the quote you had and how it was played in philosophical background to the general position about the rights of the Americans in their own freedom. These were very consistent with these delightful and especially senior composition of slavery and his uh help the organize New York society for the manumission of the slaves. And the other thing I want to say is that uh, I had a student graduate years ago who was in her family and he told me that now we have Hamilton and both families get together on a, uh, an annual, some kind of event, I think, where, where they reconcile and where the pool took place. Oh, well, thank you for your comments. And as you can imagine, in 15 minutes, I tried to cover as much as I could, but certainly there's so much more to discover about Hamilton's legacy. Uh, the work that he's done regarding slavery, especially in New York. So again, I invite you to visit more the ahasociety.org. We have so many presentations and 
uh, research that we've helped further regarding that. So thank you for your comments. Yes. I can confirm that in the Society of Cincinnati, the New York State President is Doug Hamilton, the Senate of Alexander Hamilton, who is in the Society because of being befriended by Aaron Bird's representative. Wonderful, thank you. Yes, we're all about bringing people together. <laughs> Any uh, um, evidence that her view is Mulligan not also been a member of that society? Oh, uh, I do not believe so. I'm pretty sure no, because the uh, Society of Cincinnati was for the officers okay. of the of the Continental and, and the Allied uh, forces, and so Mulligan was a very important spy. But I don't think he necessarily would have been an official member. Right. Perhaps sure no there's a potential that maybe he was an honorary member. But really, the organization was founded to really help um, further good works to help uh, protect. Wives, widows, children, uh, and, and fight for pensions uh, on behalf of the officers. That was a lot of the original nucleus. Yes. Just remember that Washington refused to join the for Cincinnati, so they're not going to participate in the aristocratic military organization. There certainly were there were several reasons why, and it was a little bit controversial, but. Again, as I said, as I know, we do so many good work with the Society of Cincinnati. Uh, they're really more about a lot of other aspects, and they did have the. Oh, I see you want to jump in and answer. I'll let you go ahead. Of course, as representative. Washington was persuaded otherwise. Yes, and his uh, diamond eagle uh, that he wore uh, was also worn by Alexander Hamilton, who also became the head of the organization in later years. On a general Horatio Gates point president of the Society of Cincinnati. I don't believe so, but I don't know all those after Hamilton. I definitely wasn't in the first view. I, I wouldn't I would rather doubt it because there was a lot of personal contention between uh, some of the allies. Uh, yes, in the back. Your question is early years. Um how did he uh, come to to the U.S. Why did he stay where he was? What propelled him from here? How could he afford it? How could he afford to go to Oregon University? Who paid for him? Wonderful question. So there's a lot more nuance to that. Uh, I'll, in very short summary, he had a, a cousin that helped support his education uh, to come here. And so he also had a lot of connections that he was put in place. So even though he came here relatively unknown, quote unquote, even though he did interact when he was living in the Caribbean with a lot of the major political forces of the day through the mercantile company that he was a clerk for. Uh, for example, when he was going to a preparatory school in New Jersey, he was staying with the Livingston and Boudinot family. So again, we're talking first president of Continental Congress. And so he immediately had a lot of connections through the work that he did with the Beekman and Kruger families. Uh, even when he was a Caribbean clerk, he was corresponding with former mayors regarding mercantile issues. So uh, he also just was really recognized for his brilliant mind and his determination to really make a name for himself despite his, you know, lack of advantage as start to life. And uh, so he really came here to finish schooling and then made this his permanent home. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Now, welcome, everyone, Allison, to the program. Hello, everybody. Can you hear me okay? 
Okay. A little more. Yeah, I'm a little taller. Than, yeah. Okay, is that better? Wonderful. Okay. Um, hello, my name is Melinda Allison. I'm the vice regent of the Fort Green chapter uh, of the Fort Green Fort Green of the Brooklyn DAR. Um, we are um, one of the oldest chapters in the DAR. We were founded in 1896, which was only five years um, after the founding of the DAR um, at the national level. So um, today I'm going to be talking about um, my revolutionary forebears. Um, as you know, the DA members of the DAR, we celebrate our ancestors. I actually have 44 um, Revolutionary War patriots. All but four of them are on my father's side. Um, and I'm going to be giving you a little overview of um, who they were and what they were like after the war. And I'm also going to provide three um, profiles of my ancestors. Um, I also have a uh, profile of um, my friend Muriel's um, Patriot of Color. So we will be um, honoring one of those as well today. So, okay, so my forebears during the revolution. So who were they? Um, they came from nine states. So uh, most of them came from Virginia, New York, or Connecticut. I also had some from Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, um, one each from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and North Carolina. So similar to the, um, the population size of the colonies, most of my people from New York and Virginia. So most of them provided military service. 29 of the 44 um, were in the military. 11 provided patriotic service, such as paying a supply tax, um, donating or furnishing supplies, uh, suffering losses in a British raid, and um, four of them provided civil service, such as um, being a constable, a sheriff, um, or another local government. So one of the things that's interesting, and when I looked during the DAR, I was kind of like, what is civil, why is civil service important? Well, they were the early um, government employees of what British thought was a rebel government. So their lives were also at risk. Had we lost, they would have been um, tried, maybe executed, definitely would have lost their property. So um, it was also a pretty risky thing for them to um, serve in the new government. So we honor them as well. <clears throat> so 29 were in the military, but only a few were officers. So 21 out of the 29 were privates and soldiers. Uh, I had two sergeants three captains, two lieutenants, and a uh, naval surgeon. So um, after the revolution, so before I go through the profiles, I wanted to kind of look at a macro level of where they ended up and how it kind of aligned with the history of the early US. So, what did they do after the war? You can see this is the same map of the nine of the 13 colonies plus Vermont. Um, 21 of the 44 migrated westward or to the frontier. Out of the states I had the most ancestors from, New York, Virginia, and Connecticut, uh, they lost approximately half of my ancestors. <laughs> so, um, Vermont um, gained, uh, as well as Ohio, Kentucky, Missouri, and South Carolina. Now, this uh, is, is aligned 
with the migration patterns in the U.S. after the war. Uh, many in eastern uh, New England would move to Vermont and New York. Uh, people from Virginia did move from Ohio and Kentucky and as far as Missouri. And uh, South Carolina was also more populated after the war. So roughly one-fourth who provided military service received bounty land or a pension. So you had to serve um, a certain amount of time. Most of the people who provided military service only um, served a few days here and there in the militia. Uh, so it's mostly continental line uh, men who service men who would get a bounty line or a pension. And um, <clears throat> And the pensions were given for those who could not afford to uh, take care of their families, usually people who were in their senior years or um, otherwise disabled, not able to work. At least 12 of my ancestors were enslavers. Nine of them became slaveholders after the war. And of these people, they enslaved approximately 110 people. So, um, oops, I gotta go back. Um, okay, so um, so James Gordon, he was a Scottish redcoat um, who became a waiter for George Washington. So as a background, um, he was a weaver from Perth, Scotland. Uh, the image there is uh, weaver apprentices in Scotland and a map of uh, Perth. So showing four Perth is in Scotland. He actually arrived with as a British soldier um, in, 17, in the summer of 1776, General Burgoyne. He switched the Patriot side in November of 1776. He served as a private in the New Hampshire Continental Line in the second regiment for on and off for about five years. He served at major camps, including Valley Forge and the James River uh, for most of the war between 1776 and 1783 but he never fought in a battle. Um, he supported camps, including that around Ticonderoga, Saratoga, Monmouth, and Yorktown. So the interest, he served as a waiter uh, to George Washington in the summer and fall of 1783. Now this was um, after the Treaty of Paris before um, George Washington came here to New York City for evacuation day parade. And um, they basically, uh, the, the existing lifeguard who had supported George Washington as um, as service support uh, got to go home around late June, and they um, got some people from some of the men from the Second New Hampshire Regiment to take their place. So um, a picture there. He was not a um, lifeguard at uh, Valley Forge, but uh, this is the this is a lifeguard. So they 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 carried the this. The luggage and things like that. It was not a very exciting job, but I think it probably was a little better than being a, a weaving apprentice. So, um, so the family lore is that he was only five three, and he, that he uh, at all these camps he used his weaving skills uh, to darn George Washington socks. <laughs> no, I cannot confirm that, but that is that is the word. Um, so after the war, um, he migrated from New Hampshire to Vermont and then to New York. So he was part of that Western migration and he did file and receive a pension, uh, which you can see here underlined for genealogy purposes. Um, and in the middle, it says um, waiter uh, for um, 
General George Washington, 1783. So, okay. Second one, Stephen Fisher. He was a frontier pack horse master and he received an early pension and then settled in Kentucky. So he was from Culpeper, Culpeper County, Virginia, and um, it, he was from an 18th century German family. So there was a significant um, German settlement in the first half of the 18th century in Virginia, and he was part of that, his ancestors were. Uh, he, he was in the militia. He served as a soldier and a pack horse. Uh, in 1775, he began active duty, and in 1777, he was serving on the western frontier in what is now known as Kentucky um, uh, to protect against uh, the indigenous tribes who were allied with the British. So in 1777, he was wounded um, in a skirmish with the indigenous people, and um, in 1778, the uh, House of Delegates in Virginia awarded him a three-year pension for his uh, wounds so that he could provide for his family. And the um, image at the bottom here is um, an 1827 uh, copy of the those uh, minutes from the House of Delegates. So he was injured in right shoulder and uh, it was backdated to probably the day that he was injured. So after the... Um, during the war, towards the end, he returned to Kentucky ter territory. He must have felt better before the three years were up, uh, 1779. And um, at the end of the war, he received a 400-acre settlement tract, um, in, or in 1780. He built um, an early fort, one of a few here, you can see in the map, um, which was Fisher's Garrison near the Danville River. And he received an additional 1,500 acres before he died in 1817. <laughs> so final Patriot, before I go to the uh, Black Patriot, is uh, John Major. So unlike the other two, John Major was kind of fancy. So he was a younger son of a Virginia planter family, at, and he's, but he served at Valley Forge in Monmouth. N not as common. His father's um, French supplies, um, his ancestors arrived in Virginia in the early to mid 17th century. So they are definitely from American standards, like old money. Um, you can see there, that's an old money map. Um, service, it said John Major, he was younger son, so he probably needed to make his own way. He was private in the Virginia Continental Line. He enlisted for three years and he served about a little more than two. In May of 1778, he was part of the 2nd Virginia State Regiment sent by the um, House of Delegates and the governor to um, join the Continental Army at Valley Forge. So this, he did not winter at Valley Forge, but he was part of kind of the tail end of that and probably uh, got a lot of training with uh, General Von Steuben and the rest of what was going on there. Uh, in June of 1778, uh, his regiment was part of the Battle of Monmouth. And then in the winter, the following winter of 1778-1779, um, he was part of the Middlebrook um, encampment, which is uh, in some ways kind of a worse case than Valley Forge. So after the war, um, in 1775, he 
received 100 acres of bounty land for his military service. Uh, he was not a slaveholder until after the war, but by the 1820 census, he had enslaved 27 people. And um, and he had, he had got his, um, his land in Kentucky. So um, both uh, Stephen Fisher and John Major are examples of um, the fact that slavery kind of grew instead of uh, decreased partially because of the, uh, the bounty lands. So final patriot is um, Plato Turner. He was an enslaved man who achieved freedom after fighting in Quebec, Valcour, and Saratoga. So background, um, he is the fifth great-grandfather of my friend and fellow daughter, Muriel Roberts, and she's a member of the DAR Manhattan chapter and also of the New Jersey African-American Genealogical and Historical Society. Um, Plato Turner was enslaved prior to the Revolutionary War. I could not find any information on uh, where he was enslaved, um, but uh, from 1776 to 1779, he enlisted with the 3rd Massachusetts Regiment. He fought in the battles of Quebec, Valcour, and Saratoga. And um, in 1780, he re-enlisted with the 2nd uh, Massachusetts Regiment. And so he served on and on, on, off and on. And then in 1773, he mustered out at West Point um, and I'm kind of wondering if maybe he ran into James Gordon because they were around there at the same time, but who knows? That's an image of Valcour. Um, so um, after the war, in 1779, so during the war, he was able to purchase a home on the outskirts of Plymouth, Massachusetts in the New Guinea committee, community. By 1783, after the war, Plato Turner, along with uh, fellow Black patriots, Kumani uh, Cash, Prince Goodwin, and Cato Howe founded the Parting Ways Free Black Community with their families. Um, this community became a kind of um, example for future free Black communities. And um, his house, you can see here, it's the, the Burnhouse Homestead, but it was actually known as the Turner for Homestead. And um, it was really kind of the center of that Harding Ways uh, free Black community. In 1792, a few years after the community was established, the town of Plymouth granted 13 or 93 acres to the residents uh, so they could be more um, self-sufficient and farm. So that is, so any questions? Yes. <laughs> Tell me again the name of the woman who's a member of the DAR and the uh, the descendant of the slave. Oh yeah, um, Muriel Roberts. Muriel, thank she you. actually goes to many uh, Francis Tavern events, but she was not able to come today. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, can your ancestors who moved from further up up south um, down into the lower southern states? Did Canada even move there during the war? Because had a lot of ancestors that did that. Like they fought in Virginia, then they fought maybe like at a higher rank in the militia down down in the Carolinas. Like, what was that a complicated your ancestry as well? There were a significant amount of um, of people who were part of the Southern Campaign and then remained in the South. Um, 
none of my ancestors did that, but that was a very common, it, people, South Carolina population grew after the war because of uh, similar things. Yes. Do you mind sharing the current generation, like where the all the family, like how long <laughs> the input generation oh, wow. and also how do you celebrate? Well, I mean, I, I'm a member of the, the DAR. Uh, you know, I, my hair's a little messed up because I was in the parade earlier today. <laughs> um, and actually it kind of brought it a little more home. You know, it's a lot better than how it probably was in Valley Forge and other places. Um, but it was, it's interesting. I, I, I like um, learning more about history and I like to learn more about the actual kind of life experiences, not just um, the, uh, you know, where they fought and 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 what they did. I, I love uh, genealogy because you can really read exactly what was happening, what they were doing, what their socioeconomic status was, uh, where they worked, uh, what they like to do. I mean, it's uh, genealogy really kind of lays their private lives bare in a lot of ways so it's it's just very fascinating and I find this is true you know whether you have early American ancestors or um, people who migrated much uh, you know later uh, were any of your ancestors uh, members of the Grand Army of Public or Sons of Penetry? Yes uh, well I don't know about those um, I don't know about those lineage societies but I had um, I would say roughly Two thirds of my ancestors were unfortunately on the Confederate side, and about one third of them were on the Union side. And it's just because the Southern side kind of like they they kind of I don't know they had more kids. <laughs> like it, it, I mean it, it started off like kind of equal, but yeah the they started having a lot of kids. <laughs> okay, thank you. When Abby was putting this program together, um, she thought it was a, be a good idea, and clearly it was, uh, to ask people from the Genealogy Society to talk about what's inspired them in their pursuit of history, because the genealogical societies, you can hear me this a little better, yeah. the genealogical societies are the ones who do a lot to keep the history alive. You just, for example, Francis Tavern is owned and maintained by the Sons of the Revolution, which is a genealogical society. And I, it looks like a picture of me there. Now, my, my name is Ambrose Madison Richardson. Uh, I'm the third. We all grew up with nicknames because we were very unimaginative about, about naming each other. There are four women in my family named Prudence, for example. And when I was growing up, um, Ambrose was an unusual name. Everybody in the Midwest where I was growing up was named Bob, John, or Bill. And when I was introduced, when I introduced myself, the first question is, what do people actually call you? Um, <laughs> And, and the answer actually was, my nickname was B, which was short for Beetle, and it turns out that a B is the symbol of St. Ambrose, so it ends up being a rational explanation for the you know, whimsical nickname that I did have. Um, 
but I was aware, was, you know, I did visit um, Virginia, where history is taken very seriously, partly because, like Boston or Philadelphia, as Ted Knudsen has explained, there hasn't been that much progress. I mean, at least in the 1960s, Virginia um, hadn't been, you know, I guess we suddenly realized that we were following a fox hunt in Virginia. And there was a farm with um, some pens out and back and some retainers, as they were referred to, that looked like they were out of the Stephen Foster song. And these pens were for fighting cocks, which of course was illegal, technically. Um, but that's what went on. And my father's first reaction is no wonder the North and the South have so many problems. They're in different centuries. <laughs> and, and this was probably true then. I was then attending, um, well, I was a, a student at the University of Virginia, which is also known as Mr. Jefferson's Academical Village. They, they take their history very, um, you know, very seriously. But in Virginia, the first families of Virginia is a big deal. Now, growing up in the Midwest, um, people didn't talk a lot about their ancestry and their families. A lot of the people in Illinois had been immigrants during the mid-19th century, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so I really didn't have that sort of interest in family. And my father and grandfather were inspiration enough for me because they were both you know, extremely accomplished in individuals. And they were my heroes, you know, for sure. Um, but it, it, we did get, when we were down there, we were touring Montpelier, which was the Madison family home. And the Montpelier that existed then looks, you know, the land is the same, but the building was kind of different. It's been restored since the time. It was owned by a woman named, um, Mar uh, I think, Margaret DuPont um, Scott, who uh, had, had made some additions to the building. And it was a little bit weird. Um, at the time, but I was made aware of my somewhat aristocratic lineage there and discovered, of course, that in Virginia, everybody is was sort of intermarried. Uh, the families were, they married each other to sort of keep, keep the lines uh, together. So when I moved my office downtown to, to Wall Street, um, I sort of figured, well, maybe I could get interested in this stuff. I mean, maybe Ambrose Madison was part of the, the American Revolution. We have Francis Tavern there. I'd always been interested in history. I put in one of my biographies that when I was in the sixth grade, I had read all of the 166 landmark books at that time. I mean, I, the only reason I did it was I was racing another of my classmates yeah. to see who could finish it first. I'm pretty sure I was second. You know, I think he beat me to, to go do that. But but a lot of those books, when you look back, they were pretty good. There was a wonderful series. Um, and as uh, kind of visiting the, the Francis Tavern, of course, was and is a marvelous place. And one of the guys said, did you realize that your great-grandfather was at Valley Forge? Well, no, I did not. You know, and there are books of these things, books of officers of people at Valley Forge. And you discover, okay, he was he was at Valley Forge. That that's sort of interesting. Why was he at Valley Forge? Well, of course, Ambrose Madison, my grandfather, is a younger brother of James Madison Jr., who was famous for you know the world's most famous arena and you know a street that advertisers had their offices on. 
Um, and he was the guy that sort of took care of things at home while his little older brother was off being a statesman. Um, he didn't go to college, um, but he took care of business back home. He was a member of the Culpeper Minuteman, um, which was in, you know, for people later, it's spelled with, you know, one P, not, not twos, which is a confusion often meant. But this was the equivalent of the Minutemen of Massachusetts. So when things started to happen in 1775, after, you know, Governor Dunmore stole the, succeeded in stealing the munitions, which they had not managed to do in Concord, um, he was up and ready for doing that. Now, this is a picture of me. Do we have any more slides here? I'm Dr. Bush, what do I do? Next. Well, that's 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 the last one. Okay, we're going to go back, and we're going to have to go backwards here. Whoops, Abby. Okay, let's see what we got here. Okay, here we go. All right, so this is the Battle of Great Bridge. So this is Governor Dunmore had left the uh, the land and was off on a a battleship, um, and attempted to sort of reestablish. Um, a, a beachhead in Virginia from, from his battleship. Uh, Governor Dunmore is famous for, for issuing the proclamation of November of 1775, which we reference here, which said, if slaves come to fight for us, they're free. Um, needless to say, this created a little bit of a uh, concern in, in Virginia because Virginia was the largest state and had the largest number of slaves at about 40% of the slaves in the United States. So people were a little bit worried about slave revolts. And a number of people did come to his, his uh, to Dunmore's aid. And a lot of these people came to fought, you know, and, and of course, as they discovered here and discovered at Concord, it's really bad to try to attach a bridge, which you can put a cannon at the other end of and defend. Um, so this ended up, you know, being pretty much of a, this was uh, described as Virginia's Bunker Hill. Um, and the, um, it ended up at this point that the Virginians were very successful, the British were not, the British were largely decimated, but this was one of the early battles in, you know, in December of 17, December of 1775, um, there's a wonderful diorama at the American Revolution Museum in Yorktown about this. I mean, nobody outside of Virginia has heard of this, but, but you know, it's, it's a big deal in Virginia, that along with, with Yorktown, so uh, we have the, you know, of course, they're the, they're the two successes that the Americans had during the American Revolution in Virginia, all of the other battles being pretty much disasters, you know, for the, that were there. Um, but from, from the Battle of Great Bridge, let's see if I can find the, the, the slide here. Okay, we, this is a, a Howard Pyle picture, you know, the Battle of Brandywine. He became part of the 2nd Virginia Regiment and went to Brandywine, which was, you know, another battle where the Americans managed to not quite lose the war. You know, the, this was like the second biggest battle of the war, the first biggest battle being the Battle of Long Island, where the Americans didn't quite lose the war, but survived to fight another day. You know, this was the Brandywine, which happened on September 11th of 1777, was the second time when Washington had been outflanked by General Howe attacked, you know, surprisingly from the, from the flank, you know, and almost had his, his troops destroyed. But fortunately, there was some of the Americans made a strong stand, including them be the Virginia Regiment took a strong stand so that the rest of the army could survive. 
anyway, Brandywine was then September 1777, from which we go to Germantown, which is a battle where the Americans tried to regroup, um, but didn't quite succeed. There was just a stone house that they couldn't quite get by. They uh, they ended up shooting each other in the fog of the uh, of, of war and whatnot, um, but that wasn't a success. But the Second Virginia Regiment was there too, as was you know my my grandfather. And let's see, where do we go next? Okay, here we go. This is so this this uh, he then was you know I got back to the place. He's on the muster rolls at Valley Forge in the 2nd Virginia Regiment. And this is a place where, you know, the um, almost the greatest losses, apart from the prison ships, you know, where, you know, like 14 or 15,000 Americans died. You know, several thousand people died in Valley Forge. It wasn't because of the cold, it was largely because of the disease. Um, but the, uh, they managed to, to stay together. And the, the, one of the, points that Washington made throughout the war that as long as his Continental Army survived, you know, the American had an identifiable cause with which to place their, their reliance, their hope, their dependence. So they stayed alive then. And in the next year, in the Battle of Monmouth, which, which uh, Melinda has, has talked about before, uh, the Americans, I guess it was sort of a draw, but the Americans you know, had um, attacked the rear of the the British column, which then turned around and fought. And General Lee started to retreat, and Washington stopped him. And the Americans took a stand, um, stopped the British, um, didn't finally pursue them. You know, but it was um, the Americans held ground, and the British left. And you know, the Americans could kind of claim victory as a result of this battle in 1778. Um, but once again, this was the second, uh, another battle for the Second Virginia Regiment. Now, fortunately for my grandfather, we got he did not stay with the Second Virginia Regiment. He went back to he went back to Virginia and became a you know he was a captain and a major for what was called the Convention Army Guards. And convention, the Convention Army was the armed British Army at Saratoga that surrendered. Um, they called the surrender a convention. So this was called the Convention Army. They were first marched up to Cambridge and then marched down to um, Virginia. And they stayed in Virginia. They had, um, there's a place I remember, I, I had no idea when I was at the University of Virginia, there's a shopping, the Barracks Road Shopping Center along the main drag is Barracks Road. Barracks Road is named because that was the location of the barracks of the British soldiers, who, as I understand, lived pretty well. I mean, compared to the Americans on the prison ships, I mean, this was just a country club. Um, you know, they socialized, you know, they, they were reasonably well-fed. I mean, they were not treated anything remotely like the Americans who were treated as rebels, not prisoners of war, and not fed or given medical care and had an 80% chance of mortality. Most of the British um, um, prisoners survived, some even stayed, you know, in the United States, particularly, you know, the, the Hessian prisoners, 
found it to their liking to live here was better than back in Germany and they, they, they stuck around. But from the Convention Army Guard, he shifted over to the Virginia militia because as we uh, may recall in 1780, Benedict Arnold is in Virginia on the other side, leading the British rampaging through Virginia. Uh, Steuben is down maintaining the troops and he's trying to get Jefferson to provide some, some uh, support for the American efforts and you know, just shocked that he can't get more support for the, from, the, um, you know, from the Virginians. And part of the problem was that the Virginians had gone south to South Carolina and had been surrendered at the at Charlestown. You know, so the second Virginia regiment ended ended in Charlestown where there were several thousand American troops, almost, I mean, I forget the exact number, three to four thousand American troops became prisoners at, at the after the siege of Charlestown. So the Virginia had sent their soldiers out and had very few left. Um, they didn't even, you know, and even when Steuben asked for you know, could we at least get the slaves to build some fortifications? Jefferson's answer was they're busy. You know, okay. <laughs> uh, so Steuben and Jefferson did not get along. Lafayette came and sort of helped hold the line a little bit um, until Washington and Rochambeau brought the troops down from New York um, to assist in dealing with Cornwallis, who was then coming up to Virginia. So then we get, what do we get? Okay, here we have, we have a picture of the map of the, the situation in Yorktown. We have, you know, if you see in the upper part of this picture is the Gloucester Peninsula. Um, and they have a, a few red dots and some green, some blue dots. The blue dots are the Virginia militia. They were sort of holding the, the line here to prevent the British from leaking out of Yorktown where they were surrounded and, and under siege. And in fact, the British tried to sail out and escape from Yorktown because they figured the, the jig was up. You know, the you know the French and the Americans had, had completely dominated the field with their cannons. But there was an enormous storm that took place and drove the ships back. They weren't able to do it. And I contrasted this when I was visiting the battlefield there in in Yorktown. I contrasted this with the American attempt to evacuate from Long Island, where there was a fog, there was no wind to propel the British ships, and the Americans were able to evacuate thousands of soldiers and live to fight again. I said, so the Americans got a fog, the British got a storm, don't you think that's providential? <laughs> and the guide said, I'm not going there. We don't get in, into that there. Um, so this was, you know, the the final place where this um, this American patriot was done. I only have twenty four revolutionary patriots that I can trace, not not forty four, and but a lot of them are not as documented as as well documented as as the Madison family. He had, you know, Ambrose and James had a younger brother William, who said he was at Yorktown. Um, a lot of people don't remember him at Yorktown, but he applied for a pension in the 1830s against his older brothers, James Jr.'s wishes, um, and actually received it because he found somebody who was there. But after the 
after Yorktown, he said he was so shell-shocked that he went home and stayed there and never resigned his commission, which nobody could find, you know, but he uh, would have if anybody had called him up. Um, and of course, Ambrose and William have sort of been known as the good brother and the not so good brother. Um, and, and William made Dolly's life miserable after, after James died. Um, but um, he was, James had a son that he also named Ambrose. So that's another grandfather. Ambrose went to West Point, class of 1817. And out of a class of 19, he graduated 19th in his class. You know, so I mean, I meant I mentioned this to my son, who's a colonel in the National Guard. He said, "You mean he was the goat?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah, he was." So he, you know, he served his, his time as an engineer and then went back to dealing with the, uh, you know, the family plantation business. And I, and I had in going through these, one of the things that you discover when you're looking at family trees it is it is like a tree; it branches out. And you might not think you're related to somebody, but somebody's wife might be related to somebody. And you find this, this sort of thing out. You know, in looking at, you know, Ambrose Madison was married to a woman named Mary Willis Lee, which would indicate she's the Willis family and the Lee family. Well, the Lee family, you know, and the Willis family were related to the Washington family. So George Washington happens to be a first cousin several times removed. These Virginia families, the, you know, the Tollivers, the Lees, the, 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 the Taylors and whatnot, um, they're all part of the same family group in, in intermarriage. But I do have another favorite person here who is a guy named Louis Rose. He's an immigrant from Germany. He lived in Kentucky. He was part of Daniel Boone's regiment. Now we think of the revolution is pretty much ending with the battle at Yorktown. But in 1782, there was the Battle of Blue Licks where the Kentucky militia led by Daniel Boone, although Daniel Boone wasn't leading this part of it, he said, this is a mistake. His headstrong son led people into an ambush um, and they were, you know, massively defeated by a coalition of groups, primarily the Shawnees, and my grandfather, Louis Rose from Germany, who was a captain in that militia regiment, was captured by the Shawnees, forced to run the gauntlet multiple times, sent off to Fort Ticonderoga, which the British then held, was gone for over a year. His wife gave up on him, sold his belongings, remarried, and then he came back. <laughs> And his, since his wife had remarried, he had his eye on the widow, or so he thought, of another of the fellow of his fellows who got captured by the Shawnees who had not returned. And on the eve of their wedding, they heard gunshots, and the bride-to-be said, that might be my husband. And it was. <laughs> However, her husband then went off to another Indian war, probably the Battle of the Wabash, and did get killed. So ultimately, Louis Rose did get to marry his, uh, his widow and um, produce some progeny and, and bring us into the, the world. So, I mean, the message that I, that I have for you, um, and, and, you know, although I had the Benjamin Franklin, I, you know, attitude is that 
people should be living on their own accomplishments and not glorifying, you know, glorying in the achievements of their, their ancestors. It's important, I think, it, for one's sense of self to understand how you got here and all of the steps um, that led to it and all of the things that your ancestors did to make your life um, possible and what they did. You know, they lived through and survived a lot of the historical events and crises that we read about. Um, and you think, oh my God, they were there. I mean, they were starving at Valley Forge. They were being shot at at a number of occasions. They were fighting hand to hand with Native Americans, doing all of these things. And they survived and they did those things which have created the institutions and the lives that we enjoy today. So anyway, I thought, Abby thought this is something that, that you know, kind of contributes to our history and I'm glad that it does. Thank you very much. All right, I, now that we're past the witching hour, um, for those of you who would like to hear me with the microphone in my hand, here I am for you. Um, this is going to be the quickest. All right, um, I'm introducing you. I am Abby Sugle. I'm an architect. I'm also vice president of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association and a president of an organization called Culture Now. We, I would like to show you two pictures of Manhattan. Um, one is 1609, this is from the Manhattan. The second one is uh, Ewan Bond's photograph of uh, the night after Sandy, taken from the same view. So you can see how fragile and our, um, and what has changed. This is the map, historical map that we made of Lower Manhattan, which is kind of what started me on this journey that is on the process today, where we actually, I took five grad students at Harvard and we wandered around probably driving a lot of you crazy as we looked for um, places of significance and pretty much bothered every historical person that we could find we, um, because they were all architects and uh, landscape architecture students and they were all students and they knew nothing of history because that wasn't actually a requirement to get into the graduate school of design. They had a very interesting learning experience. Um, that was our then map. This was our now map. We printed them in 2016. And what we did is kind of superimposed everything. The one thing that people told us about the maps is, oh my God, there's so much information here. We can't possibly deal with it. So we won't. And the maps are, so we spent the last few years in COVID kind of help taking a look at how the city has changed and then saying, how do we reimagine all the history and the place with your, which you're at. And we have been building, if you will, a digital museum of the world outside. And essentially the whole idea is could you look at the world from the, the from your phone? Could you see everything? But you have the phone kind of tell you all the stories. This is where our um, digital museum is now. This is uh, culturenow.org. This is how the collections um, are organized. There's, I think, 25. They're done by types of um, buildings, uh, types of buildings and on your phone. Um, it is live, by the way. This is a historical building. We like to show everybody Federal Hall. And the reason we do is because it's a building that has a story over time. It's got an architectural thread about it. It was, as you know, one city hall. 
then um, because it was in the middle of Wall Street, they actually had to rip. Uh, they actually had to rip it down. And L'Enfant was at one point um, redesigned it for Washington. It was where Washington was inaugurated. It was the capital of our country. So there's a lot of stories with Federal Hall. There's also a way of how do you connect the people who had impact? Historical person like Washington. How do you tell his story? How do you connect it to the places which Washington was connected to? Um, there's the website, and then there's how to do it on the app. There's how do you show details? How do you look at um, documents and drawings? Can you actually read things? I was able to get a copy of the Declaration of Independence, as you can see from the back. But how do you read things like the Declaration? How can you do it from your phone? And how can you do it when you're standing in a place where it actually makes sense? These are, for instance, a section. There's a lot of pictures of um, Federal Hall. This is a section of the building. There's absolutely no, no way you could read it unless you zoom out. So we've kind of um, gone through the process of trying to figure out how to set it up so that you could read a drawing in a document. Um, and you can do it easily. How do you listen to people? There's about, I don't know, 2,000 podcasts people have recorded already. They, they're all live. Some are better than others, but that's latest. You can make playlists. Um, there are tours. We did, um, I think there's about a dozen we've got live at the moment. Some historic, some architectural, some walking. There's navigation. Um, there's a, a component. Um, there's an image recognition component. Um, when I last left, it was um, still learning some of the artwork in lower Manhattan. But essentially, there's this whole notion of how do you point your phone at a place um, and then have it start to talk about itself. It probably, the image recognition stuff will probably be live by Christmas. Um, this is then how do, you, how do you add stories and events? So some of the events that took place, we've documented, because we know a lot of the stuff in Lower Manhattan started with that and started to add some of the pictures and the stories that took place in the places in which they occurred. Again, um, this, these are shots from the phone, so you, it'll find things near you, it'll find things, um, you know, you can zoom in. Again, it's a sort of um, beta version, work in progress, so as we get the content better, you'll start to see more. This is the um, how do you tell places of uh, stories about places over time. This is part of the reason why we wanted to start with Francis, because Francis has had a long history it's had a long history politically. It's had a cultural history. I mean, it's a museum now. It wasn't when it was originally founded. And how do you start? And there was a bombing next door. I mean, that's part of Francis's history, even though it doesn't relate to the revolution. But, you know, there's that. There was the archaeological dig that's basically across the street. I mean, I don't know if you remember in the 80s when they were building Goldman Sachs' headquarters, but essentially they started digging and they discovered there's lots of debris, the kind of archaeological debris like dishes and things. So they thought they got an archaeologist and it turned out to be perhaps one of the most expensive archaeological digs ever. And uh, they got an archaeologist, they dug it all up, and it turned out it was actually Lovelace Tavern, which of course is basically across the street. And then if you walk across to the plaza, you can see these glass on top. And they had left some of the stuff under there until Sandy, when it wasn't turned out not to be such a good idea to leave anything in place in lower Manhattan. So it's now at an appropriate conservation facility, which I think is on 44th Street or some reason, something. 
but um, we have that. There's also, how do you talk about uh, what happened on this day? Um, what happened? How do you do then and now? This is, um, I'm sorry to say it's in Boston, but you know, we are, we are expansive. So essentially these are, um, there's a lot of image sliders. And then we, you can also do image tagging. So we, um, and uh, our favorites are of course, all the people who are actually in the pictures at uh, Washington's inauguration um, to be quite um, blunt about it. It turns out there's actually people depicted here that some of the park service strangers have told us might not have actually been in this picture, let alone in that location in this picture. And um, but we started to tag who they were. Some of the statues, for instance, for those of you who walk around the commons, this is a uh, circuit court, and there's uh, many people like Peter Stuyvesant and George Clinton who were actually depicted on the top of the building. There's 54 statues on it, making it the most statued building, at least lower Manhattan, but I think in the city. Um, there's this is showing you a oh, labeling. This is showing the historic maps. We, um, if you know anything about maps, the surveying in the 1700s does not match Google. And they have a lot of historic maps. So what the solution the librarians have come to is something called map warping. And what map warping sort of means is you take an old map, you take Google, you put some pins on a few spots and then everything that isn't there is wiggly you know, and then the writing wiggles and all. That's okay for one map. But if you want to overlay a whole lot of maps, you actually can't do that because the streets kind of wiggle and the buildings get the wrong place. So we Photoshop like crazy. And it took forever, but we actually put a lot of the historic maps. I think there's 50 that we've done in this country and it will come up when, when you're near them, You'll um, your, your phone will find you. And then it'll put the maps up that are nearby. So if you're in um, Philadelphia, we have some Philadelphia ones. There's also one on the Mississippi River called Fisk Maps, which shows the history of the Mississippi. Um, it kind of looks like um, in those drawings from the 60s when they have everything squiggles a lot. Um, but it, it, it was done, I think, in 1948. But there's some really interesting historic maps that are part of our country. Also, we put on sea level rise um, for those of you who uh, walk outside, you're going to see that we're getting a lot of reinforcement on our um, shoreline. And the sea level is depicted to rise another seven feet by 2100, three feet, I think, by 2050, and, and uh, seven feet by 2100, although it changes sometimes. So we took the, they basically just got the data and put oh, superimpose the data for the whole country. So you can see what the changes are. Also, there's some things we've been trying like um, with, because uh, we have, um, we can do the GIS mapping stuff. So we, we um, started looking at the uh, evidence of wildfires around America and stuff like that, because that actually impacts our cultural heritage and started to figure out what the incidence was and a lot of those maps, I mean, when you see them in the New York Times, what you see a lot of is blobs. 
And it kind of looked like, you know, COVID looks sort of like a disease when you looked at it in any time. So you don't really pay that much attention to it. So the question becomes, how do you take stuff like that? How do you take that kind of data? How do you overlay with the history so that you see where did the thing happen? What is our cultural history? What do we need to preserve? And then, you know, what are the factors that influence how things should be changing? Um, so having said all that quickly, I just want to turn around the story of the Declaration of Independence everybody knows. Um, the one that we have in the back is the first one printed in New York by John Holt. And it was, uh, the original copy was actually approved on July 2nd in um, Philadelphia. Then they, everybody went off to John Dunlap, the printer. And I think this is the copy um, under the Declaration Committee. And the first copy was printed, I think, uh, they re-edited it. It was probably printed by the 5th. And then it was sent, um, Hancock ordered it sent to all the troops to, be, to listen to declarations. So they took copies up to um, New York and then John Holt printed some in the newspaper. The distinction of this particular one is that it's the first government document that actually has a border around it. Um, and also he, because he felt that it should be something that you could put up and display. Uh, it's felt that there are very few of them left because, unfortunately, about a month later in New York, um, uh, there was the Battle of Brooklyn, and that was the end of New York, and many of the declarations um, did not survive intact. Um, and the other four that are found are mostly in places like the National Archives. There were printers all over the colonies, and um, John Holt ended up printing another 500 copies the next week. The first public reading was actually in Philadelphia, but you know that. And then the one in New York, of course, we talked about. So and this was um, this is on our uh, map. We have the Trumbull painting. We labeled who all the people were, and then we could um, look at them. We have to thank lots of institutions, either because they returned our emails or suggested that we should use their logos or somehow. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. That concludes uh, today's remarks. Again, please take a look at both declarations at the back. We want to thank Seth Keller uh, for loaning these to us from two private collections. Uh, they'll be here through the 10th. And then uh, if you'd like one of your own, please contact Seth. He has a lot of things in his private collections. Uh, that do be to find home. So, uh, more than welcome. <laughs> 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 By the way, for those of you who missed uh, my speech at the at the uh, at the uh, parade, I have an article on the history of July Fourth in New York City. A two-page article that's right in the back. It will go over everything I went plus. Thank you. So, what are you saying? Are you saying? I'm going to say our briefly. Uh,